Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. We are at the ISM 2016 conference in Indianapolis, Indiana. My name's Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss. Lou, how are you doing? I'm doing uh, great. Great. Fascinating conference and a fascinating guest we have with us. We've had her on the show before. Always very informative and two great subjects she's going to talk to us about. ML Peck, who's Senior Vice President of ISM. ML, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Uh, talk to us about... The EISM first, and then we're going to be talking to some 30 under 30 folks, and we'll have you explain that. But EISM is a, a kind of a brilliant piece I've been very excited about, as you know. Introduce our listeners to what EISM is. Sure. So EISM is really an extension of the mastery model. Uh, the mastery model, in case some people aren't familiar, is uh, what we released last year, where mm-hmm. we identified 16 core competencies and 69 sub-competencies that roll up to those. Uh, that professionals need in order to really be successful in supply management. Um, With EISM, we're taking the next step with that, and we're including an individual assessment against the mastery model so that people can gauge where they fall, and then we've really enhanced and reimagined and re-envisioned our e-learning in order to help close any gaps. So the, the mastery model assessment works by asking a question against each of the 69 sub-competencies, and then the individual gets a report, a summary page summarizing how they, where they stand according to the core competencies, and then broken down by each of the sub-competencies. For EISM, um, the e-learning portion of it, we... We started looking into our online learning and how we can enhance it about a year ago. And we were looking at different technology platforms in order to deliver the training more effectively. Mm -hmm. And as we were looking to those different technology platforms, we started talking with our customers and doing some research. And we noticed that there's some different e-learning methodologies out there, right? Okay. So the traditional way of learning online is self-paced, self-study. The MOOCs are following that that model. Most uh, e-learning follows that model. So mm-hmm. where a user comes in, enrolls in a course, and then they take it and finish it at their own pace. Right. Um, we have found that that is a really good model for certain people or certain certain situations, right? But it doesn't address all of the needs or all the different learning styles. So there's two additional methodologies that are pretty popular now, and um, we're adding those into our catalog. The first one is called guided learning. It's a more hands-on approach, so each guided learning course uh, is going to cover a broad topic or it's going to go really deep on a topic. Okay. There'll be three, four, or five weeks in length, depending on the, on the topic. Uh, there'll be daily activity, daily things that, that the user will need to do. So they'll log on for four days a week and go through 30 minutes of online activity. Hmm. And then there'll be 30 minutes of uh, application, whether that is... Um, reflecting, reflection points, or maybe reviewing your um, T's and C's at your company, for example, or uh, posting on uh, discussion boards, so that way we can really get the social learning. So everybody that goes through a guided program will be within a cohort of other learners. So, I mean, you learn so much from your peers and your colleagues and your coworkers. Right. 
Uh, so we wanted to make sure we were adding that element. And then for one hour a week, there'll be a live webinar uh, led by an instructor, a person that is an expert in that subject matter. Okay. And um, so that's our guided learning. Okay. The just-in-time learning is a subscription-based learning that consists of micro-learning or chunks. So they're smaller bite-sized learning. So uh, no more than 15 minutes in length, and it would cover a specific learning objective. Ah, okay. And we have several different formats. So there'll be animated videos, there'll be videos of live people, there'll be a Q&A, there's CPSM flashcards. Now, I also understand, and we are speaking with Tom Derry yesterday, CEO of ISM, that when your students go through these courses, mm -hmm. at the end of the course, they're doing a practical application. They're really doing something for their company, kind of live fire exercise. Is that right? Uh, that is definitely the case 100% of the time when they go through ISM services. When okay. um, they do a, a customized learning program mm -hmm. uh, for that company. And okay. ISM services, you know, through our ISM service division, we'll be using the same e-learning te technology and the same assets to develop a customized learning solution for a company. Okay. Right? For the guided learning, there will be practical applications such as if you're taking, you know, uh, legal aspects of supply management and the focus for today is on indemnification clauses. Hmm. It may be go and find your the last three contracts that you developed, look at the indemnification clause, would you make any changes, and if so, what would some of those changes be? That might be the application work mm -hmm. for that day. Okay. Fascinating. Thanks. Now, and this is available on what platform? iPhone, oh, Android, PC. It is completely responsive and mobile compatible. So whether you are on your phone, whether it's a Droid, a Windows phone, or a Apple phone, or a tablet, or a laptop, or a PC. Well, that's great. That, that kind of covers everybody in the universe. It does. And, you know, <laughs> our, whole, our whole goal behind this is really to make sure that we are helping people learn in ways that they want to learn, that they're comfortable learning, mm -hmm. on the mediums that they're comfortable with. Well, I, in talking with you about this yesterday, it seems that ISM, in doing both the mastery model mm -hmm. and the e-learning component, is way ahead of the curve from what I have seen in terms of giving people who are in the supply chain world an opportunity to, to coach themselves up or to be coached up. Mm -hmm. Great, great opportunity for you guys that you've really taken the lead on. Congratulations on that. Well, thank you. Neat stuff. Now, you've also, now in your second year, you've had a program called 30 Under 30. Would you explain to our listeners 30 Under 30 and, you know, where it's come from and where it is today, and then we're going to get a chance to talk to a couple of the, the 30 Under 30 winners, which is very exciting for us. So we're, we're very proud of the 30 Under 30 program and very excited for this second year. We started this in partnership with ThomasNet. ThomasNet and ISM got together and talked about, you know, what are some of the major issues that our supply, supply management industry is facing? And it, it really boils down to right now, critical issues is uh, talent management and the supply of talent. Right. You know, we, we've all heard the statistic that by 2025, 75% of the workforce is going to be retired and there's just not enough uh, people in the, in the supply chain of talent management right now, right? Right. So um, we thought, how can we talk, how can we raise awareness for millennials 
that supply chain and supply management is a viable and rewarding career mm -hmm. that really dovetails with their value systems, their core beliefs, um, and with their, their goals. And at the same time, raise awareness with companies about, you know, millennials have a bad rap, unfortunately, and we, we want to shed a light on that. You know, it, it's not true. They are very loyal. Mm -hmm. they, um, they are extremely hardworking. They just work differently. Right. You, know, you don't, they, they want to own things. They want to take the lead. I mean, you heard some of the uh, panelists uh, we did. this morning. Yes. You know, and they're saying, hey, give me data. Um, help me train my successor. I mean, when have you heard that? Right? <laughs> right. And, you know, we're, we're all about no borders. Whatever you need, we want to jump in. We're going to be loyal to the company. You know, if the company, um, what they're looking for companies is opportunities for continuous learning, continuous education. I mean, they want companies to help them continue to learn in order to improve the company's bottom line. Right. What right. an amazing group of people. It is an amazing group of people. Lou and I have had a chance to talk to them both last year and this year. Uh, in, in every case, we found that whatever the myths are about millennials out there, it's way outside of this realm because these people are top-notch, very bright, very aggressive, incredibly committed. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, very committed to what they're trying to do and accomplish for companies. So, uh, you know, the myths were myths mm -hmm. at the end of the day. <laughs> Absolutely. I do have a question for you, uh, and actually I wanted to bring it up uh, this morning at the session with the 30 under 30s, but uh, it was limited time. All these companies are having programs to uh, bring people in to be able to replace uh, ultimately the, the management staff because they're getting older. Some people are getting older, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> is this, this broad-based that all the larger corporations are understanding that they've got this major problem about to blow up in their face if they don't do something about it? Um, and within the organizations themselves, there may be individuals that are giving a little pushback to having these training programs and young people being given... Uh, such incredible opportunities that they never had. Uh, is, is there anything to that? Well, so I, I do think, uh, first of all, I do think companies are aware of the problem. Mm -hmm. if, if you're not aware of the problem, you're probably not aware of your business. You're probably not an effective <laughs> business person. That's the point, yeah. because we've allowed it to get to such an extent that right. it's going to be dire soon if we don't do anything about it. Right. I mean, the... Uh, one of the panelists said that in their organization, 50% of their workforce is eligible, uh, eligible for retirement within five years, right? Right. So companies are recognizing this. They are really trying very hard to deal with this, mm -hmm. I think large and small, and they're taking some really great steps. Um, as to resistance, you know, anytime you, inter you introduce any sort of change management, you are going to have a population that is resistant to change. Yeah. And I think that's what it boils down to. Right. Okay. Yeah, I think that's where we are. Now, we're going to get a chance to uh, talk to a couple of millennials who are going to join us who are in the 30 Under 30 group. These are the winners. Um, we are going to have uh, Amy. Amy was actually – explain Amy's uh, – uh, award, if you would. So, uh, Amy is the megawatt winner. There we go. Okay. What is she? The megawatt winner. <laughs> so, these 30 under 30 professionals, they are amazing. And out of those 30, we pick one to be the megawatt. Right. And 
that is Amy this year. Really charged up, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, we are also going to have uh, Logan Ferguson with us. So we're going to speak to both of them about what they do in their respective companies and kind of some of the challenges that they uh, encounter. Uh, ML, anything else you want to share with us? I mean, the ISM conference has been really so exciting this year. Uh, the EISM has been terrific. The, the rollover of the 30 under 30 program, what have we not seen? <laughs> well, there is a lot of amazing things happening at the conference. We have different experiences for people. Uh, we have an experience for emerging professionals, those with less than eight years of experience ah. in the workforce, mm -hmm. and, and they get some different sessions. Uh, we have executive team experience. We have some uh, facilitated discussions where you can bring your team and as a team work together. And don't forget, you got Susan Kane today That's and right. Susan Schwab tomorrow, as well as the semi-annual semi economic outlook. Yes, actually. Very exciting things. There are. There are some great updates. And, and we want to thank ML for joining us again, Senior Vice President with ISM. We appreciate you taking the time. I know you've got a busy schedule and you've got to run off to something else. So we're going to swap out uh, ML with uh, Amy and Logan and uh, begin to talk about what their experiences are in within their company. So, ML, thank you again for joining thank us. Thank you, ML. Thank you both. Thank you. While we, uh, while we uh, get uh, both Amy and Logan seated and, and set up here, uh, let me just kind of give you a quick introduction to uh, these two individuals. Uh, Amy, as they said, is a megawatt winner. Uh, and Amy is from, um, well, let's see, she's program manager of supply chain acquisitions and integrations, Fluke Electronics. And uh, she's going to explain to us what she does there. And then uh, Logan Ferguson joins us. Uh, Logan is going to be... Uh, talking to us from his uh, experiences with um, problem solving. Uh, with uh, He's actually an improvement leader with DuPont. I'm sure you've all heard of DuPont. So, uh, Amy and Logan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. We, um, give us an idea, Amy, of um, you know what you're doing uh, with your company. You've been there a while, uh, but you're still under 30. So you're one of the 30 and a third. You're the megawatt winner. Congratulations. We appreciate having you on the show. What's your experience as you got into this new career and suddenly find yourself now uh, a megawatt winner and at ISM? And kind of give us a, a summary of uh, all of that for us. Yeah, definitely. So I've been with Fluke Electronics for nine years now. Okay. And I started out in their manufacturing. So I was a buyer planner for the floor. Uh, then I worked through uh, some scheduling. Fluke has a diversity of factories, so different sizes, different, you know, complexities and scope and volume and variability and things of that nature. Um, and sort of along my journey, I kept getting assigned to factories that were acquisition factories. Right. And so they were pretty fresh, pretty new, we'll say full of opportunities, <laughs> <laughs> opportunities for improvement. And so I uh, kind of made a name for myself, being able to solve problems, fix things as we go, streamline processes. Um, 
So after I've done those roles that were really factory-based, I moved into more of an analyst role, supporting the acquisitions on the operations side mm-hmm. for Fluke, and uh, stayed on, did some projects that way. It became necessary for me to move geographically for my husband's job, and oh. so I slid over into the procurement department, where it's a little less essential to be on the floor every day with mm-hmm. an acquisition, and uh, really streamline the strategy behind all of the new things that we buy. So I go in, I help them sit down, we do a three your strap plan, um, in terms of savings, executing projects, bringing in preferred vendors, kind of roll out our entire procurement suite to them, and okay. then um, I work with them over the, the next few years to make it happen. Now, you also mentioned that one of the challenges that you face is somebody does an acquisition, and their ERP system and the existing ERP system is look, don't talk to each other. That has to be a significant undertaking. Yeah, it, it certainly is. So we're fortunate we have really good corporate IT support. And so prior to, um, typically it's in the plan to integrate them into our ERP system. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's in year one, sometimes it's in year three. My preference is year one, if anybody's taking notes here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but prior to that, I'm usually able to get you know a few standard reports running to me that you know come in in, in Excel format that you know maybe is not ideal, but it's enough to be able to work with them and, and make some changes and, and things that way. So. Okay, okay. Logan, give us an idea of, of the company that you're with and what you're doing with them presently. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm with DuPont. We're a large company. We have eight different business units across multiple industries. We do anything from, from uh, performance polymers to industrial biosciences. We're in nutrition and health. Uh, electronics and communication. So we're, we're in a little bit of, of everything. Uh, right. I came into DuPont as a capital buyer and was thrown into a really interesting project. We were building uh, a cellulosic ethanol plant, Greenfield, in uh, in Iowa. Um, Easy so, for you to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was a really interesting, unique experience uh, working on that project. And then from there, I moved into an improvement leader role. Um, where I've been for a couple of years now. Got my Six Sigma black belt in uh, February. So um, Congratulations. really excited about that. Thank you. Um, so I've gotten the opportunity, because we're such a broad-based company, to really do projects in almost all of our businesses now. I've, I've had a hand in, in some part of, of learning the different businesses and, and what they do and, and how I can support them to you know improve our supply chain, drive out costs, and increase efficiencies. So. Okay. Now, in your case, I'm guessing that the DuPont ERP systems are all integrated. Well, that's an interesting guess. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Over the years, we have made a a number of large acquisitions. Uh, Uh, So we are running on multiple SAP systems, which is uh, certainly a challenge. Um, One of the big step changes we've done in the last year um, with with the decision from our our CPO, Shelly Stewart, was we um, brought in... um, GEP to implement uh, what's called their, their smart tool, actually, and it's, uh, we've, it was a way for us to take all of these multiple SAP systems to at least get us to a point where we, we were able to identify our spend across the entire company. You're talking, you know, $20 billion of spend a year. Right. Uh, it's a lot of different parts and pieces, and it's, it's good to finally have that in one place. So it's, it's been a, a good step forward, but we definitely have uh, some more work to do on that on that. Well, it was interesting because when we were in the media session earlier, I asked the group, you know, what's the biggest visibility challenge that you have? And 
and apparently it's it's just plain data, getting the right data. Is that what you're experiencing as well? Yeah, absolutely. And because, you know, the data is located in different places, it's almost like an investigation. You know, who can I talk to <laughs> to, uh, to get what I need? So you have to do a little bit of that work and, um, you know, getting those people to, to say, okay, fine, I'll, you know, I'll give you what you need. So it's a little bit of influencing on that side to, to get the data and, and, and then use it in your analysis. So. Okay. Amy, do you run across the same thing that, you know, I, I need this data and I know what I need, but I, it doesn't exist? Making friends in high places in IT is pretty critical. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yes, I definitely run into the same challenge, but um, I, I have several close friends in IT now, and, you know, when they need things from purchasing, they help them out, and when I need things from IT, they help me out, so it works out. <laughs> that works. Looking forward for uh, your company, Amy, what do you see as their most significant issue in terms of watching that supply chain? Where's their concern? I know a big focus for us generally has been risk, and risk is such a big category. Mm -hmm. um, I think inherent, so Fluke is part of Danaher currently, and Danaher is actually splitting in two pieces in, in the next coming months, yeah. so we'll become part of Fortin, which is a new, we'll both be Fortune 500 companies at the split. Um, but there's lots of expectations and lots of talk that there'll be additional acquisition activities, which has kind of been Danaher's legacy. Right. And um, we think that that'll be kind of a legacy going forward as well. So uh, when we talk about risk and you think about acquisitions, there's so many things that you inherit because you, you bought it, you liked the product, you liked, you know, you, you bought it educated, as educated as they were willing to tell you. Right. Um, but there's huge supply chain risk when you're, essentially inheriting somebody else's decisions from the last 40, 50 years. Um, and so we talk a lot about the risk factor with that. Um, and we've really tried to put into place a lot of robust sort of risk-finding exercises. Mm -hmm. One of the first things we do after we close an acquisition okay. is to go in and really understand, you know, how much of each supplier are we really supporting? Are they working out of their garage? Are they, you know, a reputable business on the corner that, you know, isn't going to have cash flow problems? Um, also, international risk in terms of logistics and port slowdowns, all of those kinds of things, really understanding our full exposure um, so that we can be multi-source and be able to respond to our customers. So, you know, go ahead. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, going a little bit granular in terms of uh, risk management, uh, and, and this I'm really getting granular. Uh, I've been in the manufacturing world for 50 years, and we have seen over the years uh, the litigious society that has created terms and conditions on orders and RFPs and RFQs and so on that are absolutely mind-boggling. And uh, the most recent one we had was a 48-page uh, document that was not readable. It was written by a, a core of attorneys to protect the company. And, but their terms and conditions have gotten to a point that th these things can't be followed. If you're doing, making risk assessment on taking this job or not taking this job, you can't really do a proper job because you know that 48 pages is aimed at you. 
<laughs> we are not partnering. So is this uh, terms and conditions on contracts, is that a issue that uh, you've run across and... Uh, uh, or am I just going too granular for the uh, for no, our discussion? It's, it's definitely an issue I've run across. So recently I was working with an outsourced product vendor. So we'd already partnered with them um, from the engineering perspective and working together to develop a product to sell under our brand and name, which is kind of unusual. We usually make a lot of our own things. Um, but in this case, we've chosen to have a partner. And uh, in this case, we were the ones with kind of the strict T's and C's. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, they're kind of like sitting there picking things apart and... And it is, it's difficult to both partner, um, because you want to be able to have, you know, a handshake kind of relationship, right, where you can really trust each other. Right. But in today's day and age where everybody, you know, has six lawyers to every employee, no, not, it's not that bad, but <laughs> you know what I mean? No, it's worse. <laughs> um, you do have to cover the risk of your company. And so when they start to take exceptions to those terms and conditions, I was on several conference calls where, you know, you've got the business unit manager who's like, I just really want to sell this stuff, like, let's make this happen. You've got two of us in procurement that are going, eh, I'm not really comfortable if we, like, redline that out. You've got the lawyer on there going, okay, well, we could compromise on that, or if we use this word instead of that word, maybe they'll sign. So, and now you're two weeks late on delivery. Uh, just two? <laughs> oh, it is an issue, then. <laughs> so I would say terms and conditions have not been a huge issue for me, like definitely not the, the part of risk that hurts us the most, but I have definitely run into scenarios where... Anybody who really takes the time to read them usually raises an eyebrow, and it's concerning on both sides, right? So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we deal with that as well. It's something where you know we're, we we want to cover our risk. We want to make sure that Dupont is covered as best as as we can, and um, suppliers certainly you know they'll take issue with that. But it helps that we're a big company. Certainly, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of business to be had there, so uh, suppliers are often willing to to accept. Uh, some of our terms, some of the more difficult ones that, that I've experienced, particularly in the cellulosic ethanol plant um, that I mentioned earlier, was, mm-hmm. it was around uh, intellectual property because you know you can get pretty um, into the weeds with that quickly, and you know who's going to own what. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if we make a change, who owns that change? Who owns that technology? So that can get um, pretty deep and pretty pretty extensive quickly. So, well, just as a follow up to my point, is that. Um, it used to be, when I first started out 50 years ago, that it, the terms and conditions were the terms of the seller, and the buyer had to accept those terms, because I'm selling, and that's the story. Well, that's totally now gone the other way, and we're now tied up in this, whose terms <laughs> right. whose terms are right? And if you have to really find that, you wind up in court. So we've created our own system to be able to redline some items and get into these discussions, but we try and do it so that everybody understands the significance of the problem to me. For example, we're a manufacturer. Uh, One of the terms and conditions is that you have the right to cancel this order at any time. I don't think so. You know, I'm in production. I'm in manufacturing at at the pleasure of the president of... XYZ company, they want to cancel the order. We can't have that. So we make our orders on custom-produced product as non-cancelable. And we put that in our document. If they catch it, they catch it. And then we talk about it. If they don't read it, we win. (laughs) 
Well, we've got uh, a couple of other uh, uh, 30 under 30 folks who are going to join us. And uh, we want to thank both Amy and Logan. Uh, one of the things I want to point out, and it came up in a discussion uh, earlier today when we were in the media room, there was this uh, old myth about millennials uh, not having the, uh, the drive and the talent and the skill sets and the knowledge. And the reality is, when you sit down with a Logan and you sit down with a Amy and a couple other people are going to join us, you're both very bright, both very driven, well-educated, well-spoken, do great analytical work, obviously. So I want to, want to congratulate you on your achievements and also point out to our listeners that uh, dispel the myth and go after the millennials. This is a bright group of folks. You're going to need them anyway. <laughs> Us gray hairs are fading out. <laughs> Who's gray? <laughs> Talk radio, nobody's gray. <laughs> yeah, that's right, they can't see us anyway. Tim, do you have the job application forms with you? Yeah, that's right. We want to steal a couple of them uh, almost immediately. Uh, um, we're going to have uh, two other gentlemen join us, but thank you, Logan, and thank you, Amy, for being with us. We greatly appreciate it. Thank, thank you so much, much for the opportunity. Thank you much. It has been terrific. Uh, we're going to have uh, Amrish Lobo join us, uh, and, and he is from uh, Baker Hughes. We're going to have uh, Michael Razzler join us, um, and we're going to be talking to them about some similar issues that uh, are going on in their career paths. Again, under 30 years uh, of age, they're taking on some incredible responsibility at the companies that they're with. Now, I'm particularly fascinated, and I'll, and I'll show my uh, uh, old prejudices here, Michael. You're with the U.S. Postal Service. Yes, that's correct. And in, in, in your mind, do, do does the general public have the kind of the Wells Fargo point of view of the U.S. Postal Service? That it's still kind of the Pony Express. Uh, yeah, all the time. And um, all my friends, when I told them, still to this day that you know I work for the Postal Service, they're like, "Well, you know, my package can get here on time." So, uh, <laughs> what can you do about it? Well, I want to welcome uh, Michael Ressler to the show, and I also want to uh, welcome. Uh, uh, Amrish Lobo from uh, Baker Hughes. Thank you for joining us, gentlemen. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, Amrish, give me an idea of what you do for Baker Hughes. I take care of Baker Hughes' logistics, distribution, and customer service function. So essentially, that's a part of the, the supply chain. So if you think about the uh, five pillars of supply chain, it's really make, uh, sorry, it's buy, make, move, uh, store, and sell. So moving a product across different international locations, different entities within the enterprise is done through the organization that reports into me. Uh, okay. Now, you say the organization that reports into you. You have a number correct. of folks working for you? That is correct. Baker Hughes operates in about 80 locations globally or 80 countries globally. So uh, uh, we, we literally have people in most locations around the world because moving of, uh, of materials happens between a product uh, happens between any of these locations. And so you, you mentioned that you haven't found a way to move it faster, cheaper, or better yet. <laughs> I, I, I think it's an evolving, um, it's, it's an evolution, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah, there is, there is no easy answer or no, no easy answer to the question, but every year we're looking at better ways to do stuff. So 
uh, part of logistics is not just just moving it from point A to point B, but it's also having your other resources in the supply chain or other functions, namely your manufacturing and your planning groups, or even your sales group on the other end, to start coordinating with us because if we can plan in advance for an integrated supply chain system, then we're able to use and leverage off some of that so we can reduce our logistics costs and get it from point A to point B. But, but oftentimes what happens in different organizations is We've got this ready, so now we need to move it from point A to point B, make it happen today, <laughs> go across across borders and, and, and get it there the cheapest way possible. Well, yeah. and you know, uh, sitting next to the postal service guy, we can get it there, but they're cheaper faster. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, what do you do with the postal service? I'm a contracting officer uh, within our purchasing organization, um, managing uh, a team that oversees uh, 15 warehouse contracts uh, that moves all of the mail transport equipment that, that we use to move the mail. So the, the plastic bins that you see all over the place that people steal, and, you know, <laughs> we, we give those out to all the mailers for free. They fill it up with their, their mailings, send it to the processing plant. It gets processed, and then the facilities, they throw it all in the trunk, in the trunk of a you know, trailer, and it comes over to my warehouses, and then uh, our suppliers process it, fix it, store it, warehouse it, and then we send it out. So. Okay. Michael, how do they sort mail? I, I'm fascinated by the fact that you get something coming through your system of every conceivable shape and size from a number five envelope to, you know, boxes, and somehow it arrives at my door in pretty good time, in pretty good condition. I, it's like, how do they do that? For a cheap price, too. I mean, relatively cheap. <laughs> right. Mike doesn't just rub it's, it in at every opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's still kind of kind of a mystery to me how we do it so efficiently. But, oh, that's yeah. good. <laughs> Magic. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, Amrish, you were talking about logistics. And is part of the logistics function to take a look at not just moving it from point A to point B, but how can I... How can I do it better? How can I do it faster? Um, all that kind of analysis, is how have we performed in the past? What can we look at in the future to make it move better? Absolutely. So uh, part of what my team does is we have a center of excellence group that, that all they do every day is just look at the different trade lanes that, that go across from one country to the other. And uh, the interesting thing in oil and gas is unlike some of our other companies like Amazon, which, which really operates in in uh, what you would call the first world countries, literally, right? And then they're trying to migrate into these other markets. Uh, oil and gas is in some of the most difficult places in the world because yes. that's where we traditionally, uh, we, have, we have exhausted some of the resources that we have available in some of the easy to access places. So mm -hmm. now the future is going to be moving into more difficult uh, locations under difficult conditions. So it's, it's almost like we are developing the path forward for some of the other organizations to think about how do you how do you get it to these difficult places. So we have a group that's just looking at things like that. So innovation happens on a daily basis when you think about oil and gas and logistics. Uh, in, in your experience for Baker Hughes, how uh, integrated is your, are your big data systems? Um, integration happens in different phases. So. Uh, we're integrated to the point at which we understand what moves from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. Now, as you think about evolution again, how do you integrate it to the planning phase? How do you integrate it through the manufacturing system? How do you pull that all together as one system? And, and I think that a lot of organizations out there are, are trying to, to find the perfect solution to get there. Yeah, I can believe that. 
Michael, how about the U.S. Postal Service? I know that they have gone through enormous change over the last 20 years. You haven't been there 20 years, but over the last 20 years, as they tried to modernize themselves and move things more efficiently. How integrated do you see their systems today, and where do you see them in five or ten years? So we've been, it's been, I haven't been there for the past 20 years, but uh, <laughs> right. over the, I've been there for eight years, and it's been, it's been pretty, um, pretty big growth and change of, of what our main focus is. So, you know, but everyone always associates, you know, snail mail or we call it first class mail, so that's the appropriate name. But, <laughs> right. but uh, every, everyone associates, you know, post service delivers the, the mail. But really, we're uh, seeing an opportunity where we need to try to change to meet the needs of our customer base, which is, you know, through uh, e commerce and through shipping packages. And um, really, it's been. We've been doing a whole lot of capital investment to buy new uh, equipment for um, better sorting parcels and packages, um, and deploying different different new technologies. So that way, we're in a position to position the full service for the future. You know, the future will be um, package mail. We know that our first class mail is on the decline. Eventually, it's going to level off at some point. But uh, if you look back at 2008, 2007 numbers. For how much mail we've lost, it's mm-hmm. been astronomical. But um, trying to become more efficient in our operations and invest in what the consumers are going to see in the future, which is the package growth, and that's been kind of our focus in the short term, and uh, it's going to be our focus in the long term as well. Um, but we still want to stay within our the the core competency of um, kind of in, we want to incorporate digital with the the mail. So, um, as part of advertising, we want somebody wants we want to send something. Have the mailer send a piece of literature to the mail advertisement that'll maybe have a QR code on it or something. So try to combine digital with hard mail because we we still see a need to have um, people receive things with their hands to touch it and then redirect them to the digital scene. Right. From a logistical standpoint, uh, I'm going a little off topic, but it fits both of you, I believe. Uh, from a logistical standpoint and being able to move freight, uh, I just uh, read a science article recently about a dirigible or an air balloon, uh, that a new technology that can effectively move 15 to 20 truckloads of whatever from point A to point B in a rather quick period of time, Uh, and they're really looking at this because 15 or 20 trucks not on the road is a huge savings, and uh, have you heard anything of this? Are you at all involved in any of this from a futuristic standpoint? There there are certainly different organizations out there that want to the next stage of breakthrough, as you call it, in logistics, right? Uh, it would be perfect if, uh, if you were to do it from, like, back to the future, the movie. Just, just <laughs> assume it goes in 10 years in the future and, and we're only there. But um, as you think about it, um, I did read an article this morning about the Hyperloop, um, which, yes. which is essentially moving stuff at 700 miles per hour right. from point A to point B, and they're, they're testing it right now, finally, yes. and I believe they are in, in Nevada. And that's, that's just phenomenal. Unbelievable. It's, it's get all that traffic out of the road, move people, move freight from point A to point B, and, and, and think about getting stuff faster and cheaper. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is the way to get there. Now, when you think about oil and gas, the challenge that we have is where are we going to put that in terms of 
uh, the locations that we operate in and deliver to. So certainly, uh, it fits the the postal service model better. So, so Mike, there's some innovation in there for you. Well, yes, we've been focusing more on kind of the drone delivery and with Amazon, they oh. exploring with drones, and and that's that's more of our. We, we always preach that we're the the last mile deliverer. So. You know, FedEx, UPS, they they use us to deliver out to the rural where they're not making a profit to deliver. So they partner with us for the last mile. Now, we're post service leadership is keeping you know focus on what's happening with drone deliveries. Amazon really going to make it a reality? Is it? Are there going to be issues with um, regulatory issues? But it's something that we need to be aware of and know if, if the market's going that way, consumers are going that way. Or how can we position ourselves to? to be able to still compete in that environment. Mm-hmm. I was at a conference recently talking about drone deliveries, right, where they were where they were talking about how drones are used to get medical equipment from point A to point B uh, because it passes all your traffic and it really goes from one part to the other. And I was just thinking about it, and if you think about oil and gas, there are really two sets of products. You have the standard product that is, that is smaller, uh, that fits in small bags, and then you have these gigantic tools that we no drones are going to be able to lift them right, right. So, not uh, today yeah, not today exactly <laughs> yeah that'll be the day when we see this big drone going inside and then you can you look at it and say oh there's an oil tool <laughs> right it'll, it'll be uh, anti-gravitation at that point <laughs> right actually, actually there was uh, an article a couple of weeks ago about these um uh, drones that were about the size of butterflies that they're making, and they are going to be sending a hundred of them to Alpha Centaurium, and it's going to ride the solar wave, and will travel at thirty-seven thousand miles per hour. Very expensive. Yeah. So if you're Very sending expensive. sending anything to Alpha Centauri, <laughs> this is a good approach. <laughs> Maybe there'll be oil discovery there soon. Yeah, that's right. We can bring it back. We can bring it back. <laughs> uh, anything, Michael, in the U.S. Postal Service where you see you know tremendous opportunity to. Uh, improve that supply chain that uh, you're kind of excited to see maybe it's coming down the pike? So so we're always exploring with different ways that we can infuse digital with the, the mail. You know, we talk about ways with potentially if you could you could see a scan of what the mail you're going to receive and then decide, you know, you can send that to the recycler. I don't need that. But this, yes, you can go ahead and send it through. Oh, interesting. Uh, so we're, we're always exploring and trying to get ideas for how we can Modernizing. Another chore for the recipient to do. Oh, I love that one. <laughs> junk mail, junk mail, junk mail, junk mail. <laughs> I can get a lot less of that. Uh, Amos, how about you? Uh, you know, as you look forward with Baker Hughes, what's kind of some of the exciting stuff that, you know, without giving away the uh, corporate secrets, uh, what's, what's down the pike not too far? Nothing much different than, than what I've already shared. I think part of the evolution is a constant um, reviewing of how our logistics happens today and trying to trying to get things to go faster across international borders, right? It's it's focusing on compliant ways to get uh, product moved from, from across the different countries, and it's using technology as an enabler to get there. Okay. And, of course, the expertise of our, of our freight forwarders that work with us day in and day out to help us connect the dots mm-hmm. and, and, and share best practices across different industries. Great, great. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining us. I want to congratulate both of you for being nominated and selected in the 30 Under 30. I know you've got a busy schedule and you've got to run off to a luncheon here. So 
Uh, Amrish Michael, thank you for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Tim Miller, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you as well. Great. We'll talk to you again soon. Can we get our yellow suits now? So we can stand out. You have to do five shows. (laughs) (laughs) So come back. Keep in touch. Keep in touch. We'd love to have you. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. All right. And that wraps us up, Lou. We've uh, we finished our three miles for today, and we're finishing up at ISM 2016. So Pleasure seeing you again. You take off for Atlanta. I take off for New Jersey, and uh, we'll see you around the studio. Absolutely. Lou, it's been great again. Thanks for uh, everyone listening to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, contact us at info at mfgtalkradio.com. We'll see you next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.